we're starting a new series uh, today for the summer. We're taking a break uh, from Matthew, and we're, we're going to, through the course of the summer, uh, go through a, a nuts and bolts series, which we do uh, from time to time, just reminding you of uh, who the church is, why it exists, what we do, what makes the door the door, what it means to live as Christians, those kinds of things. Uh, and so today we're starting. Uh, I'm going to be doing uh, four weeks over the summer uh, on the church. Uh, Pastor Brent is going to take four weeks over the summer uh, and talk about Christian living. Uh, and Pastor David is going to take four weeks and talk about evangelism. And so that'll get us kind of through the end of the summer. And then we'll jump back into Matthew uh, after that. So today, uh, I apologize in advance to you note takers. Uh, I don't have one text that we're going to camp in today. I'm going to attempt um, to give us kind of a broad overview um, of the entire Bible as it pertains to the church. So don't, don't let that thought freak you out just yet. <laughs> I think we'll get through this in a timely fashion. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about, like, wh- what is the church? Uh, or maybe a more apt question, who is the church? And we're going to try to answer both of those questions today. Um, I don't know how much time you've spent thinking about uh, just your participation and involvement in the church. Uh, kind of in our cultural moment now, uh, many people's involvement in the church is a, is a very consumeristic effort. And we do come to the church to consume. We do consume the Word of God. We do consume fellowship. But the church is not in its entirety a consumeristic endeavor, right? It, it calls for and even requires of believers uh, participation uh, in the church and, and giving to the church in, in your time and your energy and your resources and those kinds of things. And so there's a lot that we could get into in asking the question, who or what is the church? Uh, but again, I wanna, I'm going to try to stay kind of big picture today. And that's going to require us to review a little bit of Old Testament history before we get to the formation of the New Testament church. And so I want to go all the way back to the beginning. God created all things. We know this. We believe this. Uh, that God created everything that we see, the birds, the bees, the bugs, the fish, uh, the plants, the animals, um, everything that you see, uh, including human beings. And the Bible tells us how God created all of these things. It says that He, he spoke into the nothingness, and He said, let there be. And you know what? There was, right? We can do a lot of things with our human ingenuity, but, but we have not figured out how to speak into the nothingness and make something come out of it. God did that. He spoke into existence everything that, that we see when we go outside and look around. And at the pinnacle of creation, He, he created mankind, human beings, Adam and Eve. He created them, and, and when He was done with it all, He looked upon His creation and He said, it's, it's very good. It's very good. He gave Adam and Eve everything that they needed for their sustenance, for their well-being, and um, commanded them to be just caretakers over His creation. Everything that they could see w- was theirs uh, for their goodness and for their enjoyment, save the fruit of one tree that God said, don't go there. And you know how we are as human beings. You've never wanted anything so bad except when someone tells you that you can't have it, right? I knew a guy many years ago who made these little Bible tracks, and he put on the front cover of them, don't read this in red letters, and then he would just throw them on the ground or leave them on tables or leave them on benches, and every time somebody would come pick it up and read it. It's our human nature. God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed, save the fruit 
of one tree. And, and of course, you, you know how the story goes. The creation rebelled against its creator, thereby introducing sin into the world. And all of a sudden, creation was not very good anymore. We, we had this kind of brief moment in history where creation and creator were in perfect harmony, but it didn't last long because sin entered into the world. And by sin entering into the world, Adam and Eve broke the relationship that existed between creation and creator with their rebellion. And, and our, our Bible teaches us that, that we have all inherited that rebellion, that sin nature from Adam and Eve. It's kind of spiritually hereditary, if you will. It, it just goes on from one generation to the next. And this is a microcosmic picture of really what would unfold uh, not only through the Old Testament, but even still continues to unfold today. So God created two people, and, and the relationship was in perfect harmony for a time. Sin broke that relationship. We fast forward from the very beginning to Genesis chapter 6, which is still pretty close to the beginning, and we see that God showed His wrath against a sinful humanity. Sin had gotten to the point where God looked upon creation and said that the Bible tells us that He was sorrowful that He had created mankind. Not, not sorry is it that He made a mistake, not, not that kind of sorry, but just His heart was broken over the state of humanity. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, right? We could probably say that of our society today. Everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. And God was sorrowful over the impact of sin in the world. And so He pronounced judgment upon the world. And you know this story too, that He brought a great flood and wiped out all of humanity save one family, Noah. He saved Noah and his family, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. God, in a, in a great act of mercy, when everybody should have been wiped out, and our, kind of our starting point is we think of God and who He is, it kind of matters. But if our starting point is that God owes me, dominoes fall in a direction. If our starting point is that, that He saved a wretch like me, Dominoes kind of fall in a different direction, right? And, and God saves wretches like us. We, we don't deserve it. We get His unmerited favor, His grace towards us. And so He wiped out humanity saved for this one family in an act of grace that, that this family didn't deserve. And He saved them. But humanity from this point forward continued to rebel against their Creator, let me fast forward a few more chapters in Genesis to Genesis chapter 12, and we're introduced to a guy named Abram, who would later become known as Abraham. And we're introduced to him when God proclaimed good news to Abram, and not because of anything that Abram had done, but simply because God chose to be gracious to Abram. He told Abram that he would make of him a great nation. A couple of things that are required to be a great nation, land, and people. And God tells Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation, but I want you to go from your land, I want you to go somewhere else, and I'm not going to tell you where yet. I'll tell you when you get there. And He calls him away from his land and away from his people. And it's almost like God saying, I'm going to do this thing with, with my hands behind my back, right? Pronounces this good news to Abraham. He simply chose to call this man and to make of him a great nation, and out of him would come the nation of Israel. 
And if you know your biblical history at all, you know that, that Israel is integral to the, to the history of the Bible. God chose for himself in the calling of Abraham and making of him a great nation. He chose for himself a people that he would call his own. And do you see what's happening kind of so far? We're, we're 12 chapters into the Bible, and then we start with God creating two people and calling them into relationship, and their sin broke the relationship. And then God saves a family. The circle gets a little bit bigger. Sin continues to have its effect. And then Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man and says, out of this man is going to come a nation. The circle continues to get bigger and bigger. But the pattern continues that that sin would continue to be a breaking point in the relationship between creator and creation. But God's desire and His design for the nation of Israel is that it would be a community of people who had faith in their God, faith in their Creator, worshipers of Him. Israel was to be characterized as a people by their collective submission to God's rule and God's authority while enjoying His blessings upon them as a nation, a community of faith and worship. But sin kind of messed that up too. And so all throughout the Old Testament from this point forward, we see that God sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And being an Old Testament prophet, that was a tough gig because generally you just go somewhere and deliver bad news and tell people that they've turned from God and they need to turn back. And people didn't like the prophets. It was a tough gig. But God, in His mercy and in His grace to His people... And again, remember, these people, the nation of Israel didn't exist until God proclaimed it, until He spoke into nothingness and something came out of that, right? When He proclaimed to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, the nation of Israel, it didn't previously exist. So here we see again God creating something out of nothing. And prophet after prophet would continue to come and deliver this message, and prophet after prophet, for the most part, would be rejected. The nation of Israel would have its moments where it would turn back to God, but then it would go back to sin, uh, wash, rinse, repeat. And that's brief synopsis of Old Testament history and just kind of how things went. And God <clears throat> did not get frustrated by this. If it were me, maybe, maybe a couple of times I'm like, I'm done. That, that would be me. God in His mercy continued and continues today to remind us of the good news of the gospel in His mercy to us so that we might hear and that we might respond to it. God's unfolding plan from the beginning, from the moment sin entered the world, would be that He would redeem a rebellious people. What a merciful God we have that would do that. In accordance with His plan, ultimately He would send the representative of representatives, the prophet of prophets, he would send his son, not to come to earth to point the finger, not to come to earth to tell everybody they better get their act together, but he would come to earth not to be served, the Bible tells us, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so that we would heed the call of God to turn to him. You might imagine, in keeping with the pattern of the Old Testament, Right? We, we nailed Jesus to a cross. Right? We didn't really listen to his message either. And so Jesus' message was largely rejected by society as a whole. But all this while, God still desiring to have a people 
whom he would call his own. And, and there's a sense in which, because God created us, like we, we belong to him. Whether, whether you follow him or not, you, you belong to him because he created you and he created me. But his desire is to have a people whom he would bless, a people whom he would love, a people whom he would redeem from the bondage of sin and the ill effects of that rebellion. But we like our sin. John tells us that the light came into the world, but the world rejected it because we just, we just like the darkness. It's just part of the ill effects of sin. And so God continues to speak today, just like He did in the very beginning, just like He did throughout our Old Testament with prophet after prophet, just like He did through Jesus, and we have His Word. God continues to speak to us. God continues to desire to rebel a sinful people. And I don't mean to inundate you with bad news today. We're going to get to some good news here in a moment. Jesus came and, and, and he was rejected. He was nailed to the cross by his very own creation. And if that were the end of the story, then the story of, of Jesus would just be a tragic story of the death of a good man. But it's not the end of the story. Jesus' death was not a tragic death of a good man. There was actually a purpose in it. Jesus conquered sin, and he did so. He defeated death by dying. Crazy story that maybe we wouldn't write. He defeated death by dying, and he came out of the grave. Tim Keller reminds us that if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, we don't really need to pay all that much attention to what he said. But if it is true, if Jesus did conquer death, if He really resurrected from the grave, if that happened, we ought to pay attention to everything that He said and everything that He did because it matters more than anything. And that's true. Jesus conquered death. And shortly after His death, He, he tells His disciples, go, go wait, go to this place and wait, um, and I'm going to send the Helper. The Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us that He has to go so that the Helper could come. And that kind of begs the question, how important is this Helper that Jesus had to go in order that we could get help from the Helper? Pretty important, I might say. And the disciples did what Jesus told them to do. They, they went and waited, and the Holy Spirit came, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Peter, who, who was less than impressive up to this point, in the story, the power of the Holy Spirit stands up in front of a crowd of people and he, he preaches to them and he tells them, you, you killed God's prophet, you killed God's son, you killed Jesus, and he calls them to repentance. And in an instant, our Bible tells us that, that 3,000 people came to faith in a moment. And in that moment, the New Testament church was born. Two people family, a nation, and now the New Testament church is born. Have we connected some dots here in this? The New Testament church was born. And again, God, through Peter, speaking His Word, the church didn't previously exist in, in this iteration, in this format. And Peter, at the proclamation of the Word of God, kind of spoke into nothingness once again, and, and something came out of it. Right, the church came out of it and it was formed. So, so now that we've caught up on some biblical history, 
we see this pattern unfold in Scripture that God forms people by His Word, simply by speaking into the nothingness and creating something. And the New Testament church was created at the proclamation of God's Word. And we're told in Acts 2.42, Pastor Brent's going to unpack this more next week, so I'm not going to say much about this today, but I do want to read it. At the formation of the church, Acts 2.42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and the breaking of bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're not told that somebody had to sit them down and instruct them and say, okay, here's what you do. It seems like this just kind of happened at the formation of the church. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayers. They were in awe of what God was doing. Wonders and signs were being done. They were all together and they had all things in common. This sounds a little bit socialistic, doesn't it? They gave to one another as they had need. And day by day, they they were together. They attended the temple, so they, they went to church. They were in one another's homes. They were thankful for what God was doing. And somehow through all of this, it says that they found favor with God and with the people. Now, I don't know that the church always has favor with all of the people, right? I think that's something unique that happened here. But there was this special moment at the formation of the church, and through all of this, it says that God added to their number daily those who were coming to faith in Him. People on the outside looked at the church and said, I don't know what's going on there, but I need to go check this out. And then, lo and behold, they they became a part of it. Pretty, Pretty remarkable. So we put all of this together, and I want to submit to you um, my definition of the church. Here's my definition of the church with all, all of that in mind. The church consists of people who are chosen by God, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. The church consists of people who are chosen by God, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and are purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. Now, just with what we know right now getting to this point, it seems a little bit silly that our entire approach to our involvement in church would be a consumeristic effort, right? Like I said before, we do consume, but, but it's not only or solely a consumeristic effort to be a part of the church. That's all I want to just work through in a few minutes here. Uh, this definition of the church. So first and foremost, the church consists of people who are chosen by God. Maybe if you spent any time in church, you you have heard something along these lines said. It goes kind of like this, that that if you were the only person on earth, that Jesus would have died for you. I hate that statement. Jesus might have died for you if you were the only person on earth. I, I don't know, but you're not. You're not the only person on earth. We have 
churches and pastors over, over many decades have, have taught this kind of consumeristic version of Christianity that says all that matters is you and Jesus. It's about you and Jesus. But given what we just talked about, and again, broad overview, it seems kind of silly to think that this is about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. Jesus died, the Bible tells us, for the church. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 to 27, says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for the church, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church is not made up of a bunch of individual Christians that that are just me and Jesus. The church is, is a collective that's made up of the people of God, who, like, like the nation of Israel, in a sense, would be defined by their faith and worship of the true and living God, collectively, not, not a whole bunch of individuals. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people, again, collective, a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, in writing to the church, greets them this way. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I find this interesting about Paul's greeting to the church of God that is in Corinth, and then I think he goes on to define the church as being those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together. All those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. There there are other churches that exist in the world besides this one. There are other Christians that exist besides the people that you see here. There, There are Christians and churches that have existed throughout time and history that that we'll never see. There are churches and Christians that will exist maybe long after we are not on this earth anymore should the Lord hold off. There are churches and Christians that exist that, that have to be underground because of the society that they live in. That, that if they were above ground, so to speak, that they would put their lives in danger. Right? We don't have that here, thankfully, but, but it happens in our world today. And so, so the church, Paul reminds us that saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. So the church is far bigger than, than any of us can see, far bigger than any of us know. And Jesus is both their Lord and ours. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We, we see in our society, matter of fact, recently, we, we've, had, we've had some bank failures recently, like banks are here today and they're not here tomorrow, right? Because they fail. We, we see even large corporations sometimes, they come and they go. We see small businesses come and go. You know, one of the things that makes the church different than any other institution in the entirety of the world, there there are several things, but but one of them, Jesus tells us here that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. 
more on that in, in a sermon later this summer, but, but the church is going to make it till the end. Even in all of its flaws, right, the church is, is filled with, with a bunch of sinners, right? We're flawed people. We mess things up. We get things wrong. We do weird things at times. But even in all of its flaws, the church is going to make it to the end, and you get to be a part of it. The church will prevail. <clears throat> so a more biblical perspective than me and Jesus would be more like us and Jesus. Jesus died not, not for you and you and you and you and you, but Jesus died for us collectively. The gospel isn't good news for just a bunch of individuals. God didn't deliver His Son to make an individual that maybe needed some help to be a little bit better. Jesus did what He did gave his life as a ransom for many so that he could continue to assemble a people that he would call his own who would be defined by their faith in and worship of him. And he's called you, Christian, to be a part of it. And the church is not confined like in the beginning to just two people. It's not confined to a family. It's not confined even to a nation. But the church is open both to Jew and Gentile, to everybody who would call upon the name of the Lord. One of the other things that makes the church different than any other organization out there is the church exists, at least in part, for those who have yet to join it. The church exists, at least in part, for those who have yet to join it. That's part of the work that we have, and that's part of what Pastor David's going to unpack in his four weeks, is the work that we have in calling people to repentance and to faith in God. So the church first is a people chosen by God. Secondly, the church is a people chosen by God who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is giving his final address to the Ephesian elders, he reminds them to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, so the cost was a, was a severe cost. It was a steep cost. Right? We, we, we buy things every day. We go to the grocery store and we buy food. We buy cars. We buy houses. We buy things to fill our houses. We buy things to engage in our hobbies. And how is it that we determine the cost if a cost is worth it of something? Right? There are things that I want in my life that I've determined like it's, the cost is too great. Right? I would love to have a cherry red 1965 Mustang convertible. I would love that. The cost isn't worth it to me to have that. I, I, I see him on Craigslist all the time, and I say, God, that'd be so cool. Not worth it. Not worth it to shell out the kind of money, and then, then you got to have a place to store it, and that costs money. I mean, it's just not worth it. Jesus obtained the church with his blood and determined that that cost was worth it to procure the church. It was worth it. God gave up His one and only Son and determined that that cost was worth it. What does that say about the value of the church? It says something about the value of the church. It's extremely valuable to God. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, says of Jesus that He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him hold all things together. 
pause there for just a moment to say that's an impressive resume. But you know what it says next? And he's the head of the body, the church. He created everything. He holds everything together. The universe belongs to him. And he's the head of the church. This tells us something about the value of the church. It goes on to say that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus owns everything. He has authority over everything. He holds everything together. He's preeminent and he's the head of the church. And then Paul goes on to tell us that he obtained the church again by the cost of his shed blood so that he could redeem an evil people. And if you're sitting here today professing faith in Christ, you are that evil people that God has redeemed. If you have yet to proclaim faith in Christ, you're an evil people in need of redemption. And thankfully, redemption is available if we hold stable and steadfast to the hope of the gospel, which we're proclaiming here today and we proclaim here every week. And we're not going to talk about Paul today, but, but Paul even, like he went to prison for proclaiming his faith more than once. He wrote half of the New Testament from prison because this stuff mattered to him. So the church consists of a people chosen by God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and finally purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, that you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This scripture, this kind of makes sense. It makes sense what we just read, but it also makes maybe a little more sense if you read it in reverse order, right? Once you were not a people and now you're a people, once you had received mercy, now you've received mercy. Therefore, go and proclaim that good news to anybody that will listen because you are a people that belongs to God. It just makes sense. And if we read that again, what, what, what does this speak to our consumerism? This tells us that, that consumerism isn't much a part of this picture, is it? Again, we, we do come and we consume, right? We consume the Word, we consume fellowship, but, but our participation and belonging to the church is not a consumeristic endeavor. <clears throat> There's a reference here that Peter talks about when he talks about once you weren't a people and once you hadn't received mercy. There's an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. I don't know if you're familiar. It's kind of an obscure book in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. And Hosea's story is this, that God called Hosea as a prophet 
And Hosea had a wife named Gomer, and his wife Gomer was unfaithful to him over and over and over and over again. And God one day told Hosea, I want you to go find your wife. Matter of fact, I'll tell you where she is. She's in the brothel. Go get her and pay the price. Like whatever they charge there, pay, pay the price to, to redeem your wife. And there's a sense in which Hosea didn't need to pay the price because this was his wife, like already tied to him. But Hosea, in, in a moment of obedience to God, goes and redeems his wife out of this, this life of the brothel. Now, prior to this happening, uh, they, had a, they had some children. And their first child that they had, God gives them the name. He says, I want you to name this your first child, not my people. You think you had a tough name growing up. Try growing up as not my people. <laughs> Second child comes. He says, I want you to name this child, no mercy. So after all this unfolds with, with Hosea redeeming his wife, paying the price to redeem his wife out of this life of sin, God visits Hosea again, and he says, you know, your first child, not my people. I want you to change, change their name to my people. And your second child, no mercy. I want you to change their name to mercy. Beautiful picture of the gospel. I think one of the coolest pictures of the gospel in all of Scripture. And, and it's worth noting, Hosea is not the, the hero of this story. This is a picture of our relationship with God. Right? God telling Jesus, it's time. It's time to go get the people out of the brothel. It's time to go get the people and redeem them out of a life of unfaithfulness. It's time. And it's time to pay the price. And the price to get them out of this life of unfaithfulness is going to be your broken body and your shed blood. That's the cost. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all said, okay, it's worth it. It's worth it to procure this church. And if that's true, if, 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 if the Trinity decided it was worth it to procure the church, and if the church has that much value to God, the only response that makes sense is that we would be a people that does not stop proclaiming the excellency of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Here's what God did for me. He redeemed me from a life of unfaithfulness. He pulled me out of the brothel, so to speak, and He paid the price. And He redeemed me, and He cleaned me, and He washed me, and He made me new. What a story that is. What an excellency, excellency that is that we ought to proclaim. And so I would ask you just to consider how often are you able to proclaim this excellency? Because if you're a Christian today, this, this is your story. Your story is the story of Gomer. And your hero is Jesus, who did what Hosea did and, and redeemed you out of this life of an unfaithful relationship with the one who knows you and the one who made you. Why would we not talk about that? What keeps us from talking about that? The church consists of people who have been chosen by God, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. I want to close with this thought from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth because they've gotten off the rails, and he's trying to kind of set them straight. And he's talking to them in his letter about spiritual gifts and just some weird things that are happening in the church because they're, they're, they're eager to see 
kind of a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And depending on your, your background in church, when you hear that term, that, that means something. I grew up Pentecostal, so that means something when someone says a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, in the middle of writing them about spiritual gifts and, and how to have orderly church services and what's right and, and what isn't right, he, he says this in 1 Corinthians fourteen twelve. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That's Paul's advice to the church at Corinth as they're, they're trying to figure out kind of what God is up to in their midst. And he says, if you really want to see a work of the Holy Spirit, he's saying that don't, don't look for tongues, don't look for prophecy. Don't, don't. If you want to see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, excel in building up the church. And so I would ask you to consider what might you do to build up the church. Not, not what can you do to consume from the church, but what can you do to build up the church? What can you do when you show up, <clears throat> excuse me, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, what can you do to build up the church? What can you do to build up the people that are sitting around you? When you go to home group, when you go to church campouts, what, what can you do to build up the church? In your, your free time, when you're trying to figure out something to do, what can you do to build up the church? Because the church matters to God. It matters to God so much that He gave His only Son and His Son shed His blood to procure the purchase of the church. And just like in the beginning that, that He's calling people into relationship with Him, He's still calling people to relationship with Him today. And there's going to come a day when that, like, that door is going to close. There's going to come a day when, when our evangelistic effort is needed no more. We're told that there's going to be a day that's going to come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it makes no distinction between those who do so willingly and those who do so unwillingly. There's just going to be a day where everybody knows. And when that day comes, evangelism is done. When that day comes, or the proclaiming of the excellencies, we're going to be in the presence of the excellence himself. Right? So, so the window is closing on the mission. The window is closing. And so if you're here today and, and you proclaim to be a follower of Christ, we, we've got work to do. And, and it makes sense if, if what we've just talked about is true. And if you're sitting here today and, and you have yet to come to Christ in faith and in repentance, what, what's holding you back? God is calling you to be a part of something much bigger than you, and He's calling you to be a part of something that's for your benefit and for your good, to redeem you from a life of rebellion and unfaithfulness against Him. Come to Christ today. So I would ask for you all just to consider those things and to consider for you what you can do to build up the church. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning. Um, thankful for the church, thankful uh, that you love us, thankful that you have gone to such great lengths to secure for yourself a people for your own possession. And we're thankful of the benefits to us that you desire to care for us and to love us and that you desire to redeem us from sin and rebellion that you do things for us that, that we're just not capable of doing on our own. God, we're thankful that you haven't thrown your hands up in the air and said, I'm done with these people. Thankful that you continue to love us and that you continue to be merciful, that you continue to show us grace. I'll pray for us 
here today that you would help all of us to excel as we strive to build up the church because it matters to you and it ought to matter to us. And I pray, God, if we could be so bold as to ask, like in the early days of the church, that you might add to our number, even day by day, those who are coming to know you. God, help us to be a church marked with uh, seeing people come to faith in Christ, being redeemed from their sin and their rebellion. God, we can't do this uh, apart from you. We can't do this on our own. And so we ask that you would help us in that. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.